Hello, 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 hello. Welcome to the 21st edition of Where They At. My name is Nabate Isles, and it's always a pleasure to speak with legendary sports figures and people that have really revolutionized their particular sport. And this episode, it's a real treat. It's the first hockey player I've had the honor to interview. And hockey is a sport that I grew up watching for sure and and always loved the exciting pace of it, especially during the Stanley Cup playoffs. And this gentleman was someone I, I looked up to. He was an amazing goaltender, one of 13 in the history of the NHL to win 400 games, 400 plus games, seven time National Hockey League All star, five-time Stanley Cup winner with the prolific Edmonton Oilers of the 1980s. He won the Vezina Trophy as the best goaltender in hockey in the 1987-88 season, and more importantly, the first black player to be inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame in 2003. And he wrote an autobiography uh, called Grant Fuhr, Portrait of a champion and was featured in a documentary as well, very riveting uh, documentary called Making Coco, the Grant Fear story. He was named on the NHL list of the 100 greatest players of all time as part of the National Hockey League's 100th anniversary in 2017. It is my pleasure to present the one and only Mr. Grant Fear on Where They At. How are you, sir? I'm doing good, thank you. How about you? Oh, great. Everything's well. Everything's well, sir. And 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 I always ask the first question I ask all my guests is, uh, you know, where you at? What you up to? What you doing? <laughs> oh, right now I'm out. I hang out down in Palm Springs, California. I actually help run a golf course down here. Okay. Yeah. I see your golf game is, you know, you're, now that's the sport. If hockey wasn't around, if it didn't exist, would golf be the sport for you? I'd have probably played baseball. But mm-hmm. golf is a nice third sport. <laughs> That's something else. Excellence in multi-sports, multiple sports, excuse me. How are you doing with, um, with charity? I know you do a lot of charity, a lot of community work for, for all types of people. Talk about that. Talk about any, anything you have, any campaigns you have going on with COVID-19. And, and how's your family doing with that? Uh, you know what? Thanks for asking. The family's doing great. And my kids are great. They're up in Canada right now. My wife and I are down here in the desert hanging out. So right now there's not much going on charity wise, but once things get up and normal, a normal summer for us is we'll be on the road for probably 180 days doing charity stuff mm-hmm. between charity golf tournaments and going to different dinners and that sort of thing. So I'm sure once this passes, we'll have a busy schedule again. Right. Absolutely. Wow. Talking here with Grant Fuhr, Hockey Hall of Famer on the 21st edition of Where They At. My name is Nabate Isles. So, Grant, you were adopted um, as a youngster, you, as, a, as a baby, actually, 18 days old, I believe, um, and you were adopted by Bob and Benny Fuhr. Talk about the guidance and the love they had for you, especially of you being a child of color. Well, I, th- I feel very fortunate that I was adopted. I mean, if you look at a lot of kids today, they go through the system without ever getting that opportunity. So I feel pretty special in that respect where I had great parents. They allowed me to play as many sports as I wanted, which, of course, I took full advantage of. Mm-hmm. And then I was pushed to be a good student, but I was a horrible student. I was a way better student of games than I was of sitting in a classroom. So <laughs> they, they were forgiving in that sense to a point. But at the same time, they helped guide me through life. So they were a big part of my life. 
Wow. Yes, indeed. And Bob was a teacher himself. So I, I guess that it came really mostly from him, kind of, right? <laughs> but he started off as a teacher and then went into selling life insurance and then went into designing routes for Loomis Armored Car. And, but he was also played a lot of sports. So growing up, he coached some of the baseball teams. He played hockey himself. So I was always around the game. So it, good influence. Yes, yes, indeed. And Betty, I know Betty uh, was, you know, with all the sports going on around the house and everything, you know, I know she was kind of like, ah, all the sports, but, but it was good that it was something that you were passionate about. And that's the beautiful thing about your parents helping you fuel that passion. Oh, definitely. I mean, I always, I've always had a passion for sports, but they were allowed me to play the sports. Mm -hmm. And I think growing up, Idle time is something kids don't need. They've got to be into something. And all the kids I grew up with all played hockey. We all played baseball. A couple of years we played football. So there was always sports around and it kept us on the straight and narrow. Mm -hmm. That's, that's key. That's key. And, and now who are your athletic and or social figures that you admired growing up? I was a big fan of Glenn Hall. I mean, goalies were always at the top of my world. So Glenn Hall would be there. Tony Esposito would be there. Mm -hmm. um, Bernie Perrant. I mean, guys like that where I got a chance to watch them. In other sports, a big Michael Jordan fan, a Charles Barkley fan. Golf, obviously, a Tiger Woods fan. Phil Mickelson. Yes. So yeah. they, they a lot of good friends. Jimmy, Jim McMahon's a, one of my best friends. Played ah. for the Bears for a while. So i got a lot of friends in different sports now. Wow, absolutely. Now, Terry Sawchuk, talk Terry, about his influence on you. Well, you know what? Terry laid out the numbers that we all chased. I mean, I think that was the big thing. His, what do you have, 445 wins was the magic number. So growing up, when I first started in the league, you look at that number and you're like, okay, if I can get somewhere near that number, then I've had a pretty good career. So that, that was a big number for me when I played to chase. The fact that I never got there is a little unfortunate, but at the same time, I get into the 400s, so can't be all bad. And, 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 and Grant, that's amazing, too, with all the ups and downs throughout your career, injuries and personal problems, everything like that. Like, that's amazing. You're one of 13 goalies to make 400 wins. I mean, that's, that's amazing. So I kind of did things the school of life the hard way. So some bad choices, some good choices. But at the same time, seemed to be reasonably successful at it in spite of myself. So it turned out well. Wow. Yes, indeed. Wow. On the 21st edition of Where They At with the great Grant Fuhrer, Hockey Hall of Famer, one of the great goaltenders in the history of the National Hockey League. And now, WHL, you were playing at 16 years old. And coming up, and it's funny, it's very interesting. Ferguson Jenkins, I had him as a guest. And him being the first Canadian to make the uh, Baseball Hall of Fame. And Fergie talked about how race wasn't an issue. He didn't deal with that in Ontario. Same with you. Talk about how that, that was... Did you even feel, when you were looking different than everybody else, you were a little uncomfortable at times? No, that was the beauty of playing in Canada, is that you were treated as an athlete first and foremost. It was whether you could play or not. It was based off your talent. Race didn't even enter into the equation. So I think we got pretty lucky growing up that way and being able to advance through the different leagues that way. 
Wow, that, that's that's a beautiful thing because America, as you know, is a whole different thing for it's got, sure. It's got a couple of wrinkles in it. Yeah, <laughs> to say the least, that's right. And uh, now you were in the WHL and you were being scouted by um, the Edmonton Oilers and Glenn Sather, the great Glenn Sather, you, he didn't want you. He wasn't interested in you. <laughs> it was interesting, you know? And so, but talk about how, it, the the process of you being finally drafted by the Oilers and the pressure you felt being drafted, knowing that they weren't really as interested in you as the New York Rangers or other teams that were picking around that um, time of the draft. Well, you know what the funny part is? I had no idea that till I saw the movie. So <laughs> that, that was the first time I'd heard that. So that was entertaining, but it makes sense because at that time they had Andy Moog who just had a phenomenal playoff against Montreal the year before I was drafted. So, and they've had, they had Eddie Mio, they had Gary Edwards, they had Ronnie Lowe. So they had some veteran guys there. So somewhere, I'm not sure Glenn thought I fit in the picture, but Barry Fraser decided that, I guess it was a good spot for me. And fortunately it worked out. Yes, just indeed. And, and, and starting with the Edmonton Oilers, you know, like you came in, you lost your first start and then you ended up winning 23 uh, excuse me undefeated for 23 uh the next 23 games which included ties and everything so i mean how how were you able to adjust so quickly with the speed of the game at that time and 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 talk about how that athleticism helped you yeah i got lucky there was no pressure for me because i thought when i got drafted i'd go back to junior so the fact that they kept me i figured okay i'll be here for a couple of games yeah i lost my first game Funny you remember the losses, not the wins. But at the same time, I was able to just play where I didn't have that pressure of having to be great at any, good, at any time. You just had to be good. So it allowed me to just go out and play. And at that time, my technique probably wasn't very good, but I was a good athlete. So I could rely on reflexes, rely on athleticism, and I got away with it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and it's so funny, like uh, there's a quote um, in your book, I was athletically good, but not a good athlete, <laughs> which is interesting that <laughs> I learned that training with Bobby Kersey and some of the, with his wife, Jackie Joyner Kersey, and mm -hmm. you see what really good athletes are like. I had athletic ability. I was not a great athlete. Wow. And you learned that and that's how it kept your longevity. And we're going to talk about that, your longevity when you joined St. Louis. And it's so funny. I, I interviewed Dan O'Brien has a close relationship with the Curseys as well, you know, for sure. So um, now uh -huh. it took being an old man to figure that out. <laughs> but you know what? It's wisdom, wisdom. You know, that's what's all about the wisdom. So I like that term for it. Yes, yes. <laughs> now, now, early, you had ups and downs. You had that game against the Kings, uh, the comeback win that the Kings had. Uh, they were trailing 5 nothing, um, They and everything, they ended up winning the series. Now, it was tough. You had the Islanders ruling hockey in the early 80s. And then 83, um, the Oilers lost. You, you guys lost to the Islanders. But, eight, but how beautiful was it in 84 to start really building yourself as one of the elite goaltenders after the ups and downs of the first uh, few seasons? Well, my, my first year of the playoffs didn't go very well. And then the start of the second year, I'd had shoulder surgery at the beginning of the season. So I got off to a slow start there. So I didn't play really good my second year. So rolling into the playoffs, Andy was playing, but I get a chance to watch and see how it all folded. 
-hmm. And to get to the Stanley Cup final against the Islanders, who were at the top of their game, it, it was disappointing that I didn't get to play. But at the same time, it was a great learning experience to watch how they played, see the commitment to it. And then when I finally got my opportunity, I was ready for it. Andy Moog, how was the dynamic uh, between you two, the relationship? Because you guys were pretty much the same age, very highly talented. Um, how was that dynamic, you know, during, during that entire run with the Oilers between you two? You know what? We were good friends. I mean, we pushed each other to be better on the ice, but you could help each other at the same time. So it was nice having a good friend that sits beside you in the dressing room, plays the same position that you could lean on a little bit by him being so good. It forced me to be good, which I probably wouldn't have been as good without having Andy there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he's, and it's so crazy. He won 372 wins himself in his career. And, um, and do you think he'll get into the hockey hall of fame eventually? I hope eventually he does. I mean, he's, he's a better goalie than he got credit for. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Wow. Good. Wow. That's, that's for sure. Talking on the 21st, addition of where they at with the great Grant Fior. And now, uh, Grant, now the, I mean, the Oilers, the 84-85 Oilers or are recognized by the NHL in 2017 as the best team in NHL history. You were the goaltender for that team. <laughs> Please break down the prolific uh, excellence that this team had. I mean, just break it down, the Hall of Famers and the skill set, the collective um, camaraderie. Well, you know what? The camaraderie part of it was phenomenal. It was like a big family. And we were all young at that time, and it was brought up that way, that we were going to be treated as a family, and we all treated each other like family. So the closeness to the guys, one, was part of the reason it made us a good team, not to mention we had Gretz, Koff, Mark Messier, Yari Curry. I mean, we had a ton of talent, too. And we played a little different style than everybody played back in those days, where we played a wide-open style where we just thought we'd outscore you. Mm -hmm. and, and, and it's so funny. It's very interesting with that team, the longevity of all those players. You know, Paul Coffey, Glenn Anderson, Gretz, Mess, everyone, and yourself, the longevity. What attributed to everyone having like 15-plus year careers at a high level? I think it all came down to how much fun we had. I mean, we enjoyed going to the rink every day, and we enjoyed being around the guys. I think if you're going to play a long time, you have to have fun, and you have to like being at the rink. So we look forward to going to the rink to see the guys every day, and you look forward to hanging out with everybody. Wow, no doubt. Now, like being – uh, a black player in the NHL at a high level. There was someone else in Edmonton with the Edmonton Eskimos by the name of Warren Moon, who I had on my show as well. You two really were pioneers that set the trend. Did you guys communicate with each other while you guys started in Edmonton? You know what? I'd see Warren around once in a while, but I'd also see a lot of the guys that played for the Eskimos because I was a fan of the Eskimos. So I spent a lot of time hanging out with some of the football guys and we became good friends. Wow, wow. Now, do you keep in touch with Warren to, the, uh, to this day and everything? You know, I haven't talked to him in probably two or three years now. But I still see guys like Henry Gizmo Williams. Uh, Joy Holloman became a really good friend of mine that played there. Mm -hmm. So I still see a lot of the guys around. Tommy Towns. Wow, wow. And, and you remember Art Walker? One of, I do. He, yeah, yeah. Like, I, I know his daughter, actually, very well. She's a great singer, actually. So, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yes, indeed. So, so a lot of great history that the Eskimos have, for sure. And um, now, 
the 86 uh, Stanley Cup playoffs, um, that was when uh, Steve Smith, the Steve Smith goal that I mean, yeah, we had a little glitch, you know, a little <laughs> glitch. Yeah, that that was right. Um, and but you had a rough year. Your father passed away as well. Bob did. And um, how were you able to do, once again ups and downs throughout your career? But how were you able to mentally stay so focused even through it and still play at a high level? Because there's some people that cannot do that. Uh, you know what? Hockey for me was a release and a getaway. So mm-hmm. once you stepped on the ice, the rest of the world kind of took a side step to it, where that's all I could, that's all you thought about, that's all you worried about. So it was nice, kind of a nice way to get away from life. Is once you put the gear on, you get on the ice, life kind of stops. So for me, it was kind of a mental break for me to go out and play. And yeah, 86 wasn't very much fun. I mean, everybody worries about the goal, but with dad passing away, the goal really, at that point, didn't mean a whole lot to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, no, that it's it's, it's deep, you know, and and definitely uh, it's funny now being a goaltender. You're there alone at times, you know, especially when they're in the other zone, you know, down on the other side of the ice and everything. And um, now that's that type of solitude that seclusion being to yourself and then thinking, kind of thinking of what could possibly happen. Um, oh, no, you, oh. Never think, you never want to think as a goalie. Uh, oh, oh, really? <laughs> so you never, so when, so when they're in the other zone, kind of, you're like, you're not like thinking, okay, what can happen? Or you just, just kind of relaxing at that time. <laughs> uh, the best part about playing goals is just read and react. You don't really want to think a whole lot. You can think before and you can think after, but if you start thinking during a game, you're late. So you just have to read and react. Wow. And, and, and what was behind your preparation in preparing for teams and, and, you know, how, you know, uh, which shooters, which are the fastest shooters, which shooters are accurate on the net, things like that. What was your preparation in preparing for different teams? Well, you know, back then you didn't do video. You didn't have goalie coaches. So you had to learn on your own. So a lot of it's just mem. A lot of it was memory from having played against the guys. The first time you play against somebody, you're reading and reacting. So you put different things in your memory banks and each year you play, you try and get a little better and you try and add a little something to your game. So a lot of it's just kind of what you put in your mind and you retain. Interesting. Okay. Okay. And and that's, and you gotta, and you gotta definitely have an elephant mind, you know, for sure. With all the talent in the eighties, the offensive talent. Well, you try and pick four or five of the best players on each team and you try and memorize their habits. I mean, all players kind of have a habit. So I had the benefit of playing with six or seven of the best players in the world, and you're practicing against them every day. So you pick up things from them and how they want to do things. So when you get to the games, it actually makes the games easier. Well, which opponent would uh, – which, which particular player or players uh, would kind of always surprise you when you memorize something about them and then they do something different the next game? Um. Later in my career, the Europeans, because they were always a little bit different. And they did, they shot the puck in stride, whereas most of the North American players at that time didn't shoot the puck in stride. They would glide a little bit, then shoot the puck. Mm-hmm. So it added another element that you had to learn that they could shoot it in stride. I mean, certain players like to stand in front of the net to try and get in your way so you couldn't see the puck. And you had to learn who would do that and where they like to stand and what they like to do. So a lot of it was learning body language of players and that sort of thing. 
Mm, interesting. And then the, the whole explosion, like, it's very interesting. There was two great things that happened in the NHL late 80s with a lot of American teams, you know, teams are moving to uh, different cities. And then the American with pretty much Ogreski going to Los Angeles, pretty much your, your former teammate uh, and everything. And, and also the Russians coming in. How did that help the game really grow late 80s into the 90s? From a selfish point, I wish Gretz would have never got traded to L.A., but from a practical point, it, it grew the game immensely. I mean, it got exposure in markets that it wouldn't normally get exposure. And for the, for the basis of the game, it did nothing but grow the game. And it's still growing just because it's getting exposed in places where you wouldn't expect it. Hence, you've got teams in Nashville, you've got teams in Florida, where you wouldn't normally have a hockey market. Mm-hmm. Well, and now Gretz playing with him i mean you know the greatest hockey player ever and what you know what's the most impressive stat in sports history to me the fact that he has more assists than anyone has career points that's crazy you know like so um, frightening isn't it yeah <laughs> that was so frightening and uh well just talk about gretz and even messier too because messi is known as the sports one of the sports greatest leaders playing with them and and how confident they were as teammates because they always delivered and how they respected you so much. The best part is we had two of the best leaders in the game. Whereas Wayne would lead by on ice, by example and such, and Mess was kind of the vocal leader. So we had the best of both worlds, but you couldn't have asked for two nicer guys. And I think that was the biggest thing is they both went out of their way to make you feel good as a young player. They made you feel comfortable. They helped you with whatever you needed. And that was the great thing about some of the veterans we had in the team between Mess, Gretz, Lee Fogelin, guys like that, Kevin Lowe, mm. they made you feel comfortable and they made you feel like you fit in right away from day one. Yes. Wow. Now, is, is it surprising? Because it's interesting. Gretz and Mess won four titles together, but Mess won two after playing with Gretz and Gretz was close in 93. Yes, in 93, yeah. when, but they lost to the Canadians. Um, but did that surprise you that Gretz didn't win another title while Mess won two? I think a lot of it is your supporting cast, too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, we were when we won in 90 in Edmonton, we were still a good hockey team. Mm -hmm. We still had a lot of the pieces. So not surprising that we won. But at the same time, you're surprised a little bit without Wayne. Yeah. But to see Mess is such a good leader, and that's the great thing about our team is once they traded Wayne, we still had Mark there. And with Mark there, we still had one of the best leaders there is in hockey. So, yeah, you miss Wayne, but at the same time, you can still march forward. Yeah. And my favorite game ever was game six. Game six with Messier. I'm a Ranger fan, you know, New Yorker. So, 94, <laughs> I mean, when he guaranteed and delivered, you know, that's, it's, wow. Yeah, that, that's one of my, that's my favorite game. And then the Mattel goal, of course, the next game. Wow. That was exciting times in New York sports. <laughs> A good time for the Rangers. It'd been a while up until then. Uh, yeah, and it's still been a while, you know. <laughs> now. <laughs> well, here with the great Grant Fuhrer on the 21st edition of Where They At. My name is Nabate Isles. And, of course, Grant is a Hall of Fame goaltender, one of the greatest of all time, and one of the top 100 players in the history of the NHL. He was part of that list that came out in 2017. So, Grant. Your season, my goodness, in 1987-88, 
this is crazy. Like, this is one of maybe the best season a goaltender's ever had. You led Canada to the Canada Cup. You had 70, you played 75 regular season games, 19 playoff games, of course, won the Cup, won the Vezina, and you were first team all NHL. Like, that talk about that season and how everything flowed so well for you. What, what was like, um, what made that season so special for you? Well, I think we got off to a good start. That was the biggest thing. I mean, after coming off of 86 and everything, it was nice to have hockey start again. So to have Canada cup show up and you get to play with the best players there are in the game and against the best players there are coming from Europe and Russia. So mm-hmm. that got the season off to a good start. And, of course, we had a little bit of a chip on our shoulder from losing from 86. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I got lucky enough that Glenn allowed me to play a lot of hockey, which is what I like to do. Mm-hmm. So to play 75 games was fun. And then the role played all the Canada Cup games and then rolled through, played all the playoff games. So, yeah, it was kind of a workmanlike year, but it was also a fun year. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. I mean, and, and, and that, like, and as a goaltender, like, it's. Do you think is the most pressure-packed position of all in all the sports? If you treat it as pressure, yeah. I treat it as a challenge, where you're either good or you're the goat. That's the way I look at it. You can make a difference in every game, whether it's good or bad, and that's the fun part of being a goalie. Well, it, well, actually, you could be the G O A T or the goat, <laughs> like that. Oh no! You, you play bad, you get to wear the goat's horns. <laughs> that's right because because they keep saying the greatest of all time goat that that keeps coming up you know every time i hear goat it's now like oh that's the greatest of all time <laughs> yeah not not playing goalie it isn't it you usually the bad end of it <laughs> well no grant um you had you know a lot of personal problems and everything um and it led to an unfortunate suspension in 1990, but talk about um, in your private life, in your personal life, you know, with, um, you know, with substance abuse and everything. It wasn't like you were an addict or anything, but what made you kind of like have those two worlds going on of being proficient at being a goaltender and then your private life having some um, things going on? Unfortunately, I just happened to be young and not very bright at the time Mm -hmm. where I made some missteps and then, of course, when dad got sick, that didn't help anything in very much. So it just happened that everything happened bad at the same time. So it kind of got spiraling a little bit and out of control. So we went and got that tucked under control and got myself back to where I needed to be. And then fortunately, an ex-wife decided to go to the newspaper and it decided that they wanted to run it public. And when it did, we said, yeah, I made a mistake. I did it. It's been cleaned up. We're good. And I got suspended for going out and getting help. Yeah. And, and um, where was the, where was the union? Is there a players union? Where, where were they at? Did they have your back with this situation? Oh, no, nobody wanted to touch it at that time. That was, that was part of the problem is there was no policies, no nothing. So nobody really wanted to touch it. So you kind of get hung on an Island. That's deep. I mean, the only thing, the biggest thing I had behind me were my friends, family, and the Oilers organization. They were phenomenal. Other than that, you were stuck on an island by yourself. You were being put out there. Did you ever think maybe race has something to do with it? You know what? I didn't even worry about it. I mean, they were going to make an example out of me. So it was like, that's fine. When I get back to playing again, then I'll just make a point of 
looking after me. So didn't spend a whole lot of time talking to the media, that sort of thing. It was, I'm here to play hockey and my private time I'll spend with my friends and my family. And that was it. My teammates. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cause they, cause I was asking that, you know, with, with not many, not many brothers being in the NHL at that time and them making an example out of you. And also with you playing at a high level, you know how it is. They want to see people's tumble down. You know what I mean? So that's what... there, were, there were a couple of other suspensions that had happened before that, mm -hmm. that were nowhere near what I got. So it's, did they make an example out of me? Yeah. Did I earn it? Yeah, I earned it. I mean, if I hadn't have done it, guess what? I wouldn't have got suspended. So I can't really complain about that part of it, but mm. It's no fun make, having somebody make an example out of you. Yeah. Yeah. But you know what? But like you said, your teammates and that camaraderie of uh, the Oilers and, and the front office support gave you that support for sure. And um, how good did it feel to come back? Because what I was really impressed about in your book, you talked about you in the gym two times a day. You know, during the suspension, you were like really focused to make sure that you were ready and in shape to play. And it culminated with you getting a shutout in East Rutherford, New Jersey, but dealing with the hecklers, like how your laser focus, you know, describe how you really put yourself ready for that, even with all the crap that you have to hear from the fans. The fans were easy. I mean, once the game starts, you can focus on the game. You can tune fans out. That wasn't a big problem. Mm. The going to the gym, yeah, there was days that weren't very much fun, but at the same time, it burned off frustration. And mm -hmm. my outlet in life was playing hockey. So when you don't have that, you've got to find a way to burn frustration and so you don't get yourself in a deep rut. So going to the gym and having the Oilers support, even though I couldn't go to the rink and such, I was still able to talk to the guys, see the guys. That made a huge difference. Wow. And you were able to skate on the outside, obviously, like other rinks and stuff like that, right? No, actually, I didn't skate at all. I just worked out. Yeah, So yeah. I skated for about a week, 10 days before I played that first game. Deep. Wow, wow. And, and getting that shutout, that was, that, was, that was big time for sure. And um, now, being nomadic, like you, you kind of like had a part of your career because the Oilers, uh, they traded you to Toronto. Um, and it was a big time deal and you ended up going to Toronto, then to Buffalo and then to the Kings kind of moving around everything. But you talk about that and how you were able to keep yourself focused and not knowing, Oh, will I be with this team next year? You know, like how, and, and you went through some ups and downs with your play as well. So how, how did you keep yourself up, especially when you get to St. Louis and things changed? Well, you know what? When they traded Wayne, we all knew we were being traded. Mm. Sooner or later, you were leaving. So that made it a lot easier. And mm. for me, growing as up, up as a kid, every Saturday night, you saw Toronto on TV. So if I had to go somewhere to go be a Maple Leaf was the next best place I could go. So mm. that made the first trade easy. And then when I got traded from Toronto to Buffalo, John Muckler was in Buffalo. Mm -hmm. So easy to go play for Muck. Muck was straightforward, fun to play. Mm. And then I had a conversation with Muck because Dominic Hasek was starting to make his run at that time. Yes. And he said, I could stay there long-term, but probably as a backup. And I wasn't ready to be a backup yet. He said, well, I'll find somewhere to trade you. So he traded me out to LA where I think there were seven or eight of the Oilers that were out there at that time. Yari, Yari. Paul yep. Coffey, Charlie Huddy, uh, Mike Krusilniski, Marty McSorley. McSorley. <laughs> oh. For me, it was a great place to go because I was back with the guys again. And it gave me a chance to play a little bit 
And then that summer is the first time I was ever a free agent. So kind of sitting at home trying to figure out what options I wanted, where I would like to maybe go. Mike Keenan called and asked if I would sign in St. Louis. Mm. And uh, offered me a pretty good number. So it was like, well, you know what? Yeah, I can make that work. St. Louis is a good hockey town. And off to St. Louis I went. That's right. Absolutely. And, and it was funny. And that's why I was about to ask you about Mike Keenan. Talk about the respect you have for each other because you both competed against each other, two cup finals, right? And then also as well, he coached you in Canada, the Canada for the Canada Cup in 87. Talk about the respect you guys have. And Mike Keenan, of course, ended up coaching the Rangers in 94, you know? <laughs> so it comes full circle with him and Ness, you know? So, but, but uh, Mike Keenan, like, he, he's one of a kind. He's definitely one of a kind. He's a little different than most coaches. But at the same time, you having played for him previously, I knew what to expect. Mm. So Mike likes to be in control. So when I got to training camp, I was so probably 10 pounds heavy, which was normal for me in training camp. So we didn't get off to the quickest of starts and flashiest of starts. But Mike said, hey, we'll put that – we'll disagree to disagree and just play, which is perfect for my world. It's just play, which is what I did. And he let me play – as much as I could play. And all you'd ask every five or 10 games if I was tired and I'd say no, and I'd get to keep playing. Wow. And you kept playing like, and it kept playing 79 games that season at age 33. That was yeah, an old like man. It was okay. I would have loved to have played 82. That was kind of the goal. <laughs> well, no, but that, that's all right. 79. And then like your work with the curses, like that helped you be able to, for that, to have that um, durability. It did. And then when I wrecked the knee in the playoffs that year, probably the most proud of was the next year. Because they said, well, we don't know if you can play again. You'll definitely not make training camp. And I sat down with Bobby and we talked about it. He's like, if you want to make training camp, we can make that happen. I was like, well, I'll do whatever you ask me to do if I can make training camp. So he took the time out of his schedule to fly up to Edmonton and spend a couple of months with me in Edmonton where we could work out every day. Mm-hmm. And I made day one a training camp and then still managed to squeeze in 73 games that year. Oh, my God. Amazing. And, and unfortunately, that was the playoffs where Stevie Y had the shot um, and you weren't in net. If you were at net, St. Louis could have got to the finals at least for sure. Now, talk about your feelings when you were like, oh, I wish I was in the net for that play because they played Detroit. I mean, close. You know what I mean? And then it had to end that oh, way. No, no. That was a year we had a team that was good enough to win a Stanley Cup. We had all the pieces, and we were playing well, which is the big thing. As a team, you want to be playing good. We were playing good hockey. So, yeah, unfortunate to get hurt against Toronto. But at the same time, we still had a chance because the team was that good. Yeah, and and no disrespect to John Casey. No, you know, no disrespect. Just, no, know, Johnny like played you. good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Johnny played, Johnny played good. It just Stevie Y made a good shot. Mm-hmm. And how beautiful was it to be back uh, with Gretz in St. Louis and also Al McGinnis, who was your roommate back during the NHL draft. So you guys go way back, same age and everything. How beautiful it was and how comfortable it was to be with those two. Well, you know what? It was fun because Gretz is always fun to play with. We, we've been friends for a long time. And to get to – I sat beside Al in the dressing room in St. Louis. So to get to know Al because always playing against him. So and with the big rivalry between Edmonds and Calgary – 
it was it was fun to play behind him because you don't realize how good he was defensively. Everybody knew he had a big shot and he was good offensively, but you didn't realize how good he was defensively. So it was fun to play behind him. Yes, indeed. And, and the hardest shot ever. <laughs> Al McKinnon's had that shot every year. He had the hardest shot in the All-Star Probably weekend. still to this day, it may be the hardest. <laughs> That's right, for sure. Well, I loved his game, Al McKinnon's, for sure. And uh, now um, – it's, I have to say, what, what do you advise young athletes with everything you've gone through, the ups and downs? I mean, for not just with, with uh, the personal issues with substance abuse, but also both shoulders and both knees reconstructed, uh, being suspended for nearly a year, moving from team to team, having you know, struggles in the beginning of your career. What, what type of advice that you give young athletes on how they can be able to, to not to be even keel and not let those adversities take over. I try and teach them to believe in themselves. That's the one biggest thing that you can do is you have to believe in yourself. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you start to get doubt creeping in, then everything else starts to creep in. So the biggest thing you can do is believe in yourself and you have to enjoy what you're doing every day. I mean, that's the one thing I can say over 20 years of playing is I enjoyed going to the rink every day. I looked forward to it. And the biggest thing when I retired is, I miss going to the rink every day because it was a fun place to be. It's fun to be around the guys. So you have to enjoy it. Mm, no doubt about that. Here on the 21st edition of Where They At with the great Grant Fuhr, Hockey Hall of Famer, one of the great goaltenders in the history of the National Hockey League. Now, Grant, you closed your career with the Calgary Flames, the rival, <laughs> you know, pretty much. And how much mystique does the Saddle Dome have, really? Especially when you played your last season in Calgary in there. Hey, you know what? It was fun to play in the Saddle Dome. I think I played the first game in there, too. So when they first opened it, we went in there, and I think we beat the Flames that night. But mm -hmm. for me to go to Calgary for my last year, it's nice to come back to Alberta because it's in the same province. And my mom was from Calgary. So the Battle of Alberta had tamed down a lot since I played in Edmonton. It wasn't bad going to Calgary. It was actually a lot of fun. Wow. Wow. And, and during that last year, uh, your mom passed away of cancer. And, um, you know, that was tough. But like you said, it was interesting you playing your last season in Calgary while your mom was from there. And then she passes, like, the closure there. Um, how bittersweet was that? Well, it was good because she was alive to see me finish in Calgary. Yes. So she passed in oh, what, late April that year. So the season was done. Mm -hmm. So th that part was good that she got to see that and everything. But it was kind of – it was closure of my career. It was closure of everything. So it's good in a sense and it's bad in a sense. That makes sense to you. Yeah, right. Right, no, no doubt. And 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 you had it was interesting. You had young players, especially a young future Hall of Famer by the name of Jerome Ginla, and then also Fred Braithwaite, who you backed up. So that's interesting. Talk about the tutelage you gave those young brothers and the fact that they looked up to you, of course. You know, how how starstruck were they of you? Well, you know what? They were great kids. I mean, Freddie I had known from playing against them and talking to them over the years and such. And I've known Jerome since Jerome was a kid. When I played baseball, I actually played for his grandfather's team. Mm -hmm. So I had got to know Jerome when he was oh, probably seven, eight years old. So I'd known Jerome for a long time. 
So great guys to hang around with, and there's no nicer people on earth. Drone is your consummate professional, mm -hmm. and any team would love to have him. He's just that good of a person. Yes, yes, indeed. And I know you'll be at his Hall of Fame induction for sure. I will definitely be there. <laughs> no doubt. No doubt about that. And uh, wow. And Fred, how is Fred Braithwaite doing? How is he doing? Freddie's doing good. He was working for Team Canada for a little while. And then he went and was doing some work for the Islanders. So Freddie's doing good. Making the Hall of Fame 2003, being the first black player to make the Hall of Fame. Um, I know you gave it up to Mr. Willie O'Ree, the first black player in the NHL. Um, but really like talk about the, the, how special that moment was for you. Well, you know what? One, it's a very proud moment. I think that's, that's one of the biggest things is as an individual, yes, you win Stanley Cups and everything, but it's kind of the whipped cream on top of everything that they see that you've laid down a good enough body of work to get to the hall of fame. But I think that was, that was the part where I was very lucky that I got into the hall of fame I get in, Willie did all the hard work. He went through all the racial stuff and everything to actually lay the groundwork to make it easy for me. Mm. So you had to give Willie his kudos for that. Plus he's a phenomenal man. He's still a good friend of mine. So to be able to do that, and then when you're making the speech, you want to make sure that you thank everybody. Mm -hmm. And I'm not very good at writing speeches, so I didn't write a speech. It was easier to just speak from the heart. Yes. Yes, and yes, and, and it was filled with that for sure. And and, and Mr. O'Ree, I mean, it's crazy. He's, he's 84 years old. How's he doing? You know, like, help Willie's, Willie's awesome. He's the busiest 84-year-old man I know. <laughs> well, I got to get him on the show. What is your take on, on Blacks in the NHL? And because there are more players that are there and everything. Um, but how can we get more? in the NHL, be more culturally diverse and everything, especially now we're in a time where, you know, where the, the exposure is there for the league, for people to come in. But um, are, you, are you working with programs, doing, um, working with anyone, anyone to be able to open up, you know, academies for young blacks or anything like that in North America? Like, um, what do you think should be done? Well, I think the NHL has got a program called the diversity program, okay. which Willie's working with right now. And I think that the biggest thing is getting, is the exposure more than anything is you've got to get kids to be able to play the game. So you've got to go into the Harlem's you've got to go into Watts, Compton's all those places and expose kids to the game. Mm -hmm. And I think once you can get sticks in their hands and such, once kids start playing, they fall in love with the game. Yes. Or, or you have to get them in the rinks is first and foremost. And the NHL has done a good job of that. But there's still room for improvement on that, where you still need to get more exposure. You, down in the southern states, it's starting to get some more and more exposure. So I think you're going to see a lot more different ethnicities playing the game. Mm -hmm. And I see that. Like, definitely, like, it's definitely building. And, and which, um, name a couple of uh, black players uh, from Europe time period or playing now or you know, like any generation that, that you feel like this person did not get the recognition or persons did not re get the recognition or opportunity they deserve? Because there are a lot of guys that didn't get the playing time but had the skill. So, uh, which, which players do you name? 
Well, I think there's a few guys that didn't really get recognition. I mean, I played with Bill Riley. I went to camp with Bill Riley one year, who grinder type of a player, but a great guy, going to be a great coach someday. Mm -hmm. I mean, Tony McKegney, another guy that had a really good career. Yes. I mean, you look at the tough side of things, Val James, probably one of the toughest men that ever played the game that doesn't get a lot of credibility. Mm -hmm. I mean, you look at the kids now in the league, Wayne Simmons. Yeah. Another guy. That's so. I, the game is growing more and more, and you're going to, as they get more exposure, it's going to get better and better. And then a young kid, Akima Lou, is going to be a good player. Mm -hmm. So, wow. and, and, and that, I like where the game's going. Yes. And what do you think of um, uh, Subban, uh, PK Subban, and Seth Jones, those cats? That's unbelievable. I mean, I know his dad, so he's got good <laughs> bloodlines when it comes to that. And his brother's a good player. Caleb's a good player, too. Yes. So they, they've got good bloodlines there. And PK is a talent all on his own. I mean, I love the fact that he's got the big personality. It's yes. something that hockey's not used to. Right. So he, he gets a bit of a bad name for it. But, hey, there's nothing wrong with a big personality. That's right. Absolutely. You know, and he has a big profile wedding coming up with Lindsey Vaughn, too. You know, so that kind of, like, brings out that that profile big profile style <laughs> oh yeah it'll, it'll definitely catch some attention yes yes and there's a young man that could be the first uh pick in the 2020 nhl draft by the name of quentin byfield and he's a sensation in the ontario hockey league and uh, of jamaican descent too so what's your yes. take on him can he be like possibly the best player in the game within the next five six years Best player in the game might be tough, but he's going to be a very good player. And I mean, speaking of Jamaican hockey, look at what Graham Townsend's done with the Jamaican team. Mm -hmm. There's another thing where they're actually looking to build a rink in Jamaica right now. Yes. So hockey's progressing around the world in great spots. So it's fun to see the game grow like that. Mm -hmm. Now, say if they uh, called you to maybe coach them or something, would you do it? Oh, I'd do it in a heartbeat. Mm -hmm. I mean – any chance you have to give back to the game and watch the game grow is worth doing. Who's the best goaltender in the NHL right now? Or if you want to name a few names too, but who, who are the guys that are like, oh, this, this guy's amazing that you say to yourself? Well, I think Carey Price is the best in the game right now. I mean, he's been carrying Montreal on his own here for the last few years. So yeah. that, that's an okay hockey team that's become a good hockey team because of Carey. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And the funny part is he gets a lot of flack for it when he's not good. They're like, well, maybe he's lost it and such. They don't realize he carries that team most nights. Wow. Yes, indeed. Wow. And, and now also Edmonton, current Edmonton Oilers, they, you know, they only made one playoff appearance in the last, you know, pretty much last dozen years, 17 years, something like that. Yeah. Long time. But this, you know, of course, with COVID-19 striking, they, they were heading to the playoffs this year. Um, but I have to like, what do you think of, first of all, can Mike Smith and Nico Koskinen, can, can those guys help them go far? You think? Actually, I think they can because they're a perfect duo. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the great thing is they push each other, which when they do that, it makes the team better. And if you look what Edmonton's built, they've got a lot of great young kids. Mm -hmm. It's And the chemistry is getting better and better. And I think it doesn't matter how much talent you have, you have to have chemistry. And if the chemistry is not right, then you've got to move pieces till you get the right chemistry. And I think they've done that. Ken Holland's done a really good job with that this year.
Leon Drosadol, Connor McDavid, Ryan Nugent Hopkins. I mean, those guys right there, I mean, they're young too. Like, can they, can they get to that level, that elite level? I mean, I, I hate to compare, but I'm saying of Gretz, <laughs> Messier, Curry, but the way they're playing in their mid, like early to mid 20s, can they get to that level eventually and lead Edmonton to eventual cup? I think they can because they're both getting better, which is really scary to say because Connor's phenomenal right now, but he's still getting better. And Leon's just starting to find his own goal scoring wise. So in comparisons, it's a lot like Gretz and Mess, where they're the two leaders. Nugent Hopkins is kind of like a Glenn Anderson or a Yari Curry that kind of fits in. Mm -hmm. You can see that they're starting to get better and better. Should the NHL season uh, should should it resume or should they just wait to the fall? Like, what, what's your take? And if and if it's yes, if you say yes, what should they do with the games? Like, should they go straight to the playoffs? How should they proceed? From a selfish point of view, and there's nothing on TV now, I'd love to see playoff hockey. Okay. But they've, they've, they've got to make sure it's safe for the players first and foremost. Is a season worth endangering players? It's not. It's still a game. It's still – you have to treat it as a game. But at the same time, I think everybody wants to see playoff hockey. So whether you finish the last 10 games of the season or not, I don't think really matters. Mm -hmm. If you want to jump into the playoffs and maybe you add a couple extra teams and away you go. Mm. And, and I have to say, personally, the Stanley Cup playoffs, is that's the best postseason when it comes to series, to me. Especially when you go into sudden death and when, you know, on that goal. Oh, no, it, there's nothing better than playoff Thank hockey. You. Tell, yeah, tell the, tell the audience, like especially people that don't follow hockey, tell the audience, you've lived it. Tell them how the Stanley Cup playoffs is nothing like it. Oh, no. I, I'm a big fan of football, baseball, but there's nothing like Stanley Cup playoffs. I mean, I think that's the one big thing. You see the emotion, and it's every night. And it lasts for two and a half months where you're every second night laying it out there. So, one, it's the hardest trophy to win. Two, it's the most fun to watch. Uh, and there's no home ice. There's no home ice either. It's like, it's, you never know who wins. You know? <laughs> well, that's the best part. And sometimes it's not always the best team that wins. It's the team that's playing the best. Mm -hmm. Ask Tampa Bay last year, you know. <laughs> yeah, look at St. Louis. They were dead last in January. They yes. come back to win a cup. So it's the team. And they played playoff hockey from January through to the end of the year. So it's, and they were in playoff mode. So they were the team playing the best at that time. That's right. And a rookie. And a rookie led them, too, and joined Bennington. You know? Jordan Bennington <laughs> kind of stepped into his own. So you got to have all the right pieces fall into place at the right time. Yes, no question about that. And uh, now, Gretzky, Wayne Gretzky, your great friend, your teammate, uh, Alex Ovechkin is now over 700 goals. He needs 189 to get to Gretzky's record of 894 to pass it to pass 894, will OV get it? With COVID setting in, I think it might have put a wrinkle in it. Mm -hmm. I mean, had the season kept going and everything kept going, I think he had a chance. He's that good of a goal scorer. But with this season being laid off, if they don't finish the season, then I think that puts a serious wrinkle in it. Wow. Well, now, before we go, sir, um, I want to ask you some questions. I, I'll do a segment. Uh, it's called Power Play. 
quick random questions for you. And uh, it's funny, if you're a baseball player, be hit and run. If you're a football player, be no huddle. If you're a basketball player, be fast break, you know? <laughs> so definitely have a different name for, for each person in, in their different sports. So here we go with power play. Now, most underrated player that you've seen, it, it could be someone that played during your career or someone that's playing now, most underrated player. Yari Curry. Mm. Mm. All right. Most bizarre teammate. Oh, geez. I've had a few of those. I'd probably rate Kevin McLeod or Marty McSorley in that category. <laughs> McSorley, yeah, yeah. Uh, any example of, the, of any of those guys uh, being bizarre? Like, <laughs> Oh, no. Some of those things are X-rated. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. No, They've no got some demons. <laughs> no need to say more. No need to say more. <laughs> the most uh, challenging penalty kill situation in your career? Uh, probably the five on three in game seven against the Flyers in 87. We get ourselves in a little bit of a bind early, so that put a little pressure on things. That and I gave up a bad goal during, so puts a little heat on things. Wow, wow, that, what, what a series that was. And, and what, what'd you, what was your take of Hextel winning the con Smythe even though they lost? I thought he played great. I mean, for Philly to get to the finals, Hexy had to play great. So I thought Hexy played great. I had no problems with him getting the consmite. Mm, wow. And wow. So now, pregame routine. What was your pregame routine? Did you have something that you did every time that you had to do? I like my two hour nap in the afternoon. You go to practice in the morning, you come home, you eat, have a little nap, get up about three, go down to the rink around four, sit, drink coffee, play ping pong, and you're ready for the game. Wow, nice, nice. I like that. Yeah, because napping is good. Those power, well, not two hours, two hours isn't really a power nap, but yeah, that's, a, it's, it gets you rejuvenated for sure. I take power naps. I take, I, I can sleep for 15 minutes. And be <laughs> that's the biggest thing I missed since I retired is I can't get away with the excuse that I have to have a nap. <laughs> well, now, the activity that helps you relax outside of hockey uh, that's non-sports? Um, listening to music or driving. I enjoy driving and listening to music. So kind of the combination of the two. Wow. Now what's, it, what's, uh, what's in your playlist right now, musically? Uh, right now I've got a little Travis Scott going. Oh, okay. All right now. Interesting. Yes, indeed. Yeah, I'm a musician myself. So, you know, definitely. Uh, ah. I'm always, always interested in, 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 in what, uh, what, what people are listening to. Wow. So Travis Scott, any, any other artists? Like, uh, what do we got? Travis Scott, Alicia Cara. Mm -hmm. uh, I've got a wide variety of everything. I've got some Commodores. I've got some Gap Band. Ah, uh, yeah. Earth Fire. We jump through the different generations. Wow. And that's good. And that shows, Grant, that's a beautiful thing because that shows that you're open to those generations because there are a lot of people set in their ways, unfortunately. <laughs> so when it comes to music. Oh, no, I've got, I've got an appreciation for all of them. Wow. No, that's what's up. That's great to hear. Now, the toughest goon you've seen as an opponent, because I know you play with McSorley and everything. So as an opponent, the toughest goon. Toughest, uh, probably Brian McGratton. Right, yeah, yeah. He's it, it, a big, tough kid. Mm -hmm. That's right, he won a lot, a lot of fights. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> and, and he enjoyed what, it. Yeah, yeah. And what, and what do you think? There's a lack of 
quote unquote goons now in the league. That's uh, that's one thing I'll ask you a little bit later about how. But but what's your take there about that? That there's not that muscle much in the league right now. Well, I think the reason we had it is you wanted your best players to be able to play. And you wanted the game to be policed by the players. And that's what those guys did. It's not so much that they were goons as they were policemen where nobody took liberties with your stars. Yes. So your stars were able to be your stars. And I think if you watch in the playoffs in today's game, like you watch Pittsburgh and Sidney Crosby, he gets mauled in the playoffs. Mm-hmm. And the year that they had Ryan Reeves there, he got to free wheel a little bit and didn't get mauled as much. Yes. So you've you've still got to have guys like that if you want your best players to be your best players. Well, no, no doubt about that. Well, oh, I'm sorry. Two more questions. Oh my God, I digress sure. from from the power play. Two more questions on that. Um, now, how many hockey masks do you own? I, I I was I almost said mask in general, but you know we we all wear masks now. But I mean hockey masks. How many hockey masks do you own? All right, what have I got? I think I've got all but one or two of the ones I wore when I played. Really? Interesting. Oh, yeah. That's kind of about some people collect different pieces of equipment. I like the masks. Aha, uh-huh. interesting. Interesting. Very good. And and any other memorabilia that, that are you a big memorabilia guy? Um, I've got stuff from different athletes from different sports, but a lot of my stuff, nah, not a whole lot. I've given a lot of it away over the years. Wow. Wow. And and the one defenseman that made your job easier? Kevin Lowe. Hmm. Wow. Perfectly solid defensive defenseman. Between him and Lee Fogelin, it was they were the perfect defensive pairing. Such an honor to have you on the show and everything. Um, the NHL, what can it do to bring more exposure to the game? Because, you know, it's, it's behind the f- – the three other major sports of MA, you know, MLB, of course, NBA, NF, and NFL. How can the NHL get to that commercial appeal? Because you don't even see games anymore on, on primetime television, really. Well, and that's the difference between the other major sports in the National Hockey League is the exposure it gets on TV. So I think, well, I think one of the mistakes they made was getting away from ESPN. You had hockey on every day when it was on ESPN. So unfortunately, getting away from that, but it's they've got to get a big TV contract. That's the big thing is it's got to get the exposure, whether it's cable networks or whatever it is. The more exposure you get, the more kids see it. The more kids see it, the more kids want to go to the rink. Once you get them in the rink, they're sold. Mm, dig that, dig that. And, uh, and, one, and one last thing, the game. Any pros and cons about today's game, pacing and skill set, like pros and cons of the game today? No, oh, no, I love the speed of the game today and the skill set they've got. I mean, it was fun, the old hooking and holding that guys fought through and everything, but the fact that they're trying to go back to offensive hockey, I think is a great thing because it was fun to play when it was offensive hockey and the fans loved it. Every building was full. So the fact they're trying to get back to offensive hockey, I think is great. Wow. And goaltender numbers, like the save percentages are up and and the the goals against averages are down. Is that deceptive, though? It's it's, uh, agents like those numbers. The only number that really matters is whether you win or lose. It doesn't matter whether you got pretty numbers or not. If you win, you're going to get paid. So I'm kind of, I'm old school when it comes to that. I don't care if somebody's got great numbers. Show me he can make a save when it matters and you win a hockey game. That's what really matters. Yes. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Wow. Well, I have to say, Mr. Grant Fuhrer, 
as I mentioned earlier, I enjoyed watching you play. I enjoy watching those Oiler teams. That's when I got into sports, basically, seeing the uh, the just the smooth rhythm and the, and uh, the synergy and just the offensive excellence that that you guys had, and then the athleticism that you showed, the greatness you showed on net and sp- helping spearhead those championships. And Mr. Fiore, it's such an honor to have you on the twenty first edition of Where They At. I thank you so much for joining me. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you all for listening to the 21st edition of Where They At. And wow, to have the great Grant Fuhrer on the show. This man was a pioneer in the National Hockey League and was the first black player to be inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame. One of the greatest goaltenders in the history of the game. And such a pleasure to have him on the show. Very gracious and very humble. And it was great to to hear his reflections um, of his glorious career and especially how he got through all the adversity that he had in his career and be a tremendous player in the NHL. So also too, if you like the music, you can go to N-A-B-A-T-E-I-S-L-E-S.com. That's nabateals.com. And the music is from my album, Eclectic Excursion. So you can go on the website to check it out. And you can also purchase it, download, stream it through Amazon, through Apple Music, through Spotify, through Tidal, through Google Play, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you can hear the eclectic sounds of the music that I composed. And remember, Where They At is available on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, on iHeartRadio, on Google Play, on Stitcher. Also, Catropolis Radio Network as well uh, streams my podcast too. So please subscribe and or follow and rate. That really helped me out as I continue to interview prolific individuals in their particular sport. And there's 21 episodes now. It's been amazing. And the one person that's not an athlete that I interviewed was the great Chuck D, who is a prolific music artist. So there we go. I want to be around greatness. So be safe. Be well, be blessed, and remember to stay home so we can stop the spread of this horrible disease called COVID-19. Thank you all for listening once again to Where They At. I'm the Bateals, and I'll be back sooner than later with another great episode. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.